Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1119 with a release and air date of Saturday, August 8th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1119 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Amateur radio volunteers up and down the East Coast go on alert for the latest tropical storm. Radio amateurs take part in the historic first commercial human space flight to the space station. The ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program recognizes 13 good operators. You can meet up with the league and ham radio vendors virtually during the world's first and largest online ham fest, the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo, taking place during the August 8th and 9th weekend. Campus radio clubs are facing an altered landscape in the coming fall semester. SpaceX's new Starlink constellation has some competition as Amazon's Kuiper satellite constellation receives a thumbs up from the FCC. Registration begins for the 2021 session of the Youth on the Air Summer Camps, which will take place next year in Ohio. The Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame puts out a call for its 2020 nominations. And do you have trouble identifying digital modes by ear? What if there was an app, similar to Shazam, for digital mode identification? Well, there is, and we will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, explains how to create your very own custom email address. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, tells you what to expect during your first DX digital contact. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a look at the state of amateur radio in the year 1977, which covers the expansion of CB radio and the 2-meter FM band. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell you about his experiences weatherproofing coax connections and what to use. That and a whole lot more is straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in bright and sunny Albany, New York, I'm George W2XBS. From the high hills in the great American northeast of East Greenbush, New York, I bid you good evening and or good morning wherever you may be. I am Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our radio bunker, high atop the rain-soaked forests of New York's Catskill Mountains, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. 
And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where we've gone from autumn weather back to summer weather with head-snapping speed, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week, amateur radio emergency service volunteers along the eastern seaboard were on alert this week to support needed communication as Hurricane, sometimes Tropical Storm, ECES, worked its way north. The storm is now passing through outer Canada after first making landfall in North Carolina as a Category 1 hurricane. High wind, rain, and the possibility of coastal flooding were considered the most likely dangers, but tornadoes broke out in the middle Atlantic states, triggering extensive damage, flooding, and knocking out power to more than 3 million homes and businesses. The storm caused at least five deaths. Southern New Jersey Section Emergency Coordinator Tom Devine, WB2ALJ, was among several SECs who said their sections were on alert but not activated for tropical storm winds, flash flooding, and tornadoes. All county teams are prepared and Skywarn teams were requested to provide key severe weather data to the Regional National Weather Service office, Devine told ARRL, adding that other SECs from the Middle Atlantic states were in communication. The Hurricane WatchNet activated twice for ESAES on July 31st and again on August 1st. The initial activation ran 41 hours, the second about 12 hours. Hurricane WatchNet manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, reported very poor to non-existent propagation for the second activation, but he noted that a few members remained on the air to assist as needed. Throughout this short 12-hour second activation for ESAES, members of Hurricane WatchNet collected and forwarded many surface reports from the coastal areas of South Carolina and North Carolina to the National Hurricane Center by way of WX4NHC at the National Hurricane Center, Graves said. As the storm continued on its projected track, amateur radio operators in the Northeast United States were credited with playing critical roles when a tornado touched down in western Massachusetts on August 2nd. The National Weather Service put out a statement thanking the amateurs for their assistance in identifying areas of greatest damage in an area that is not densely populated and for making use of a drone to gather video footage. According to the Weather Service, the maximum wind speed was 80 miles an hour. The tornado covered a path of nearly 8 miles, damaging homes and trees and taking down power lines. No injuries or fatalities were reported. Bob Benkin, KE5GGX, was one of two NASA astronauts who made spaceflight history over this past weekend. For more details, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters. Benkin and Doug Hurley were the first astronauts since the 1970s to make a water landing after their Dragon capsule splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico last Sunday. On May 30th, the pair made history as the first live crew to be launched into space in a commercial vehicle for a stay on the International Space Station, marking the return of human spaceflight to U.S. soil for the first time in nearly a decade. The SpaceX Falcon 9 vehicle carried the crew into orbit from Cape Canaveral. The so-called Demo-2 was the last major test for SpaceX human spaceflight system to be certified by NASA for operational crew missions to and from the space station. Four huge parachutes carried the capsule to a safe splashdown near Pensacola, Florida on Sunday, August 1st. While part of the space station crew for two months, 
Benkin and astronaut Chris Cassidy, KF5KDR, the sole American on board when the Endeavour capsule docked, carried out four spacewalks to install new batteries. On behalf of the SpaceX and NASA teams, welcome back to planet Earth. SpaceX engineer Michael Hyman radioed to the crew after their landing. And thanks for flying SpaceX. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine proclaimed that the U.S. was entering a new era of human spaceflight, noting that NASA was no longer the only option for U.S. space travel. We are going to be a customer, he said. NASA has contracted with two companies, SpaceX and Boeing, to ferry astronaut crews to and from the International Space Station. The SpaceX Crew Dragon vehicle was designed for short-term missions, and Behnken and Hurley's mission had only been expected to last a week. As a result, Behnken did not receive amateur radio on the International Space Station training on the radio gear in the Russian sector. NASA subsequently decided to monitor the mission and make a decision on how long the Crew Dragon would stay. Cassidy fielded all Eris school contacts. So, the mission will be remembered for its notable firsts. The splashdown, the first for a manned capsule after a break of 45 years, also marked the first use of the Gulf as a landing site for a U.S. space crew. The May 30th launch from Kennedy Space Center was also the first for American astronauts since the shuttle's retirement in 2011. There is still one more first yet to happen, and this one is a family first. Bob's astronaut wife, Megan MacArthur, has been chosen to be the pilot of the same SpaceX Dragon next spring. Three amateur radio operators will be on board with her. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. ARRL volunteer monitors recognized 13 operators in 10 states with good operator letters during the second quarter of 2020. Among the operators recognized were CW and SSB operators on 20 and 40 meters, outstanding net operators on 2 meters, including a net control of the Central Indiana Skywarn net, and an operator on 40 meters who demonstrated exemplary courtesy and assistance to amateurs with technical issues. ARRL will be a virtual exhibitor at the all-online QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo, taking place this weekend, Friday through Sunday, August 7th, 8th, and 9th. ARRL staffer Bob Interbitzen, NQ1R, a familiar face at many in-person ham fests and conventions for nearly 30 years, will be among the more than 21,000 registered to attend. The many HamFest cancellations due to the pandemic have been difficult for everyone this year, Interbitson said. I'm really looking forward to this unique online experience and connecting with friends, old and new, from throughout the amateur radio community. Interbitson will join a handful of ARRL staff members supporting the organization's virtual booth throughout the event. 
Exhibitors will also include major amateur radio manufacturers and equipment dealers, and there will be opportunities to text and video chat with representatives. In addition to the exhibit hall, five full interactive lecture halls will feature speakers and presentations spanning the range of ham radio interests and activities. I hope many members and other attendees will drop by the ARRL booth to say hello, Interbitson said. Visit us to learn about the many initiatives and new benefits introduced to ARRL members this year. We'll also have incentives to join ARRL and the Diamond Club, renew your membership, and some publication purchase specials. As ARRL's product development manager, Inderbitson collaborates with other staffers and member volunteers to develop and improve membership services, programs, and products. This year, ARRL has introduced a string of new membership benefits that includes On the Air magazine, expanded member access to all four ARRL digital magazines, including QST, On the Air, QEX, NCJ, and the ARRL Learning Network, a new member-led webinar series. ARRL has also added additional programs to its podcast offerings, which now include On the Air, Eclectic Tech, and the ARRL Audio News. The QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo is an ARRL-sanctioned event. Registration is free. A complete schedule and list of exhibitors and speakers is available on the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo website. Many colleges and universities are preparing incoming students for fall classes amid a complex landscape of re-entry plans due to the global pandemic. Schools are pursuing a variety of instructional modalities, including live and asynchronous online classes, reduced size, or no in-person classes, as well as hybrid classes with some mix of it all. At schools where in-person attendance is allowed, the emphasis is on classes. Related student activities such as sports, clubs, and so on may be non-existent or extremely limited due to the demands of social distancing and the needs to repurpose facilities and rooms for lower densities. As institutions are forced to make hard choices, it's going to be more important than ever for school amateur radio clubs to find ways to continue even if in-person meetings are impossible. Some campus radio clubs continue to sponsor training and testing of new hams by using video conferencing and asynchronous communications to offer instruction and support. ARRL's instructor discount program includes reduced price self-study license manuals, including the popular ARRL ham radio license manual. The discount program is ordinarily offered at ARRL registered instructors, but ARRL has temporarily extended the program to any in-school students who call to order license manuals by referencing their school radio club or their league registered instructor. Club instructors can download free instructional resources for use with the ARRL ham radio license manual, including PowerPoint slides, syllabus, and study review questions. Some college clubs are providing scheduled online license tests. For example, the Columbia University Amateur Radio Club in New York City and the MIT Radio Society in Cambridge, Massachusetts have scheduled online license examinations. To make club resources available when in-person gatherings are not possible, some college clubs have remote-enabled their radio stations. California Polytechnic recently shared the details of the monthly ARRL Collegiate Amateur Radio Initiative web conference in July. The monthly online conference continues into the fall. SpaceX's Starlink is getting a new competitor that has money to burn. 
Amazon has received approval from the Federal Communications Commission to start building its internet constellation named Kuiper. The tech giant wasted no time after last week's green light, announcing that it would invest $10 billion into the constellation's creation. Named after the distant belt of frozen space rocks that includes Pluto, that NASA describes as the frontier of space, Amazon expects its Kuiper system to consist of 3,236 satellites that will orbit the Earth at what's called low Earth orbit, between 430 and 932 miles above the surface of the planet. Amazon's Kuiper, much like the SpaceX Starlink constellation, is designed to provide high-speed broadband internet service to government, business, and consumers. The system is to include customer terminals, gateway earth stations, software-defined network and satellite control functionality, among other components. Kuiper has stated that it can commence service after the first 578 satellites are launched. There will be five phases of deployment. For space-to-earth communications, Kuiper plans to operate on 17.7 to 18.6 GHz and 18.8 to 20.2 GHz. For Earth-to-space communications, it will use 27.5 to 30.0 GHz. Amazon has already posted 104 new job openings in support of the Low Earth Orbit project. Many of the jobs are in various parts of the engineering field and in wireless communications and are based in the states of Washington, Virginia, and Georgia. If you're between the ages of 15 and 25 and live in the Americas, now is the time to start planning about getting on the air at camp next summer. Although the pandemic canceled plans for the first youth on the air camp in the Americas this past June, young amateur radio operators can look forward to July of 2021. Organizers have announced that campers from North, Central, and South America will be able to attend camp sessions that have been rescheduled for July 11th through the 16th next year. The activities will take place in Westchester Township in Ohio at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting. Early registration is being granted for campers who have been accepted to this year's camp. Once that is complete, new registrants will be permitted to sign up. The camp can accommodate as many as 30 youngsters. Licensed amateurs who are 15 through 25 years of age will get on the air during a week-long special event station. For this year, a virtual Youth on the Air Day was held on Zoom and streamed on YouTube in place of this year's on-site camp. The day's activities can be viewed on the Youth on the Air YouTube channel. For more details about next year's camp, visit youthontheair.org or write to Camp Director Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, using the email director at youthontheair.org. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
The Radio Amateurs of Canada recognizes deserving amateurs by appointments to the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame. The Constitution of the Hall specifies that the appointment as member of the Hall is for outstanding achievement and excellence of the highest degree, for serious and sustained service to amateur radio in Canada, or to amateur radio at large. The trustees of the Hall have interpreted the Constitution to mean that the person has performed significant service over many years to enhance the well-being of amateur radio. No single achievement would necessarily qualify an amateur for the Hall of Fame, but a lifetime of service would be favorable. A list of previous Hall of Fame members can be found on the CARHOF webpage. Nomination Information and Procedures Nominations shall be submitted to the Board of Trustees using the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame nomination form, which is available for download from the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame webpage. When filling out the nomination form, please be aware that the nomination should be kept confidential and known only to the nominators. The person being nominated should not be made aware of the nomination, nor be asked for his or her approval to be nominated. All nominations should include a biographical sketch or curriculum vitae and three references for the member of the hall. Nomination documents may be submitted by email or by regular mail, but the preferred method is by email in PDF format as these are much easier to process. Please send the PDF documents directly to the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame Chair at carhof at rac.ca. While e-documents are strongly preferred, they can also be sent by paper to Chair, C-A-R-H-O-F, Frank Davis, V-O-1-H-P, 2 Crab Apple Place, St. John's, Newfoundland, A1A, 5L7. All nominations for member of the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame must be received by the close of the last business day of September. The 2020 AWRL Simulated Emergency Test, or SET, will take place on October 3rd and 4th. The annual nationwide exercise provides amateur radio emergency service volunteers the chance to test personal emergency operating skills and communication readiness in a simulated emergency deployment. With more details on the upcoming SET, we go to league headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. ARRL is asking participants to adhere to Center for Disease Control and Local Health Department COVID-19 guidelines by staying home, maintaining safe distances when around people, and following recommended cleaning and disinfecting practices. ARRL field organization leadership at the section and local levels as well as many other volunteers who are active in public service and emergency communication, are developing emergency scenarios with a variety of agencies and organizations that they've partnered with in the past during real emergencies and disasters. Given the ongoing pandemic, an in-person emergency exercise may not be possible this year, but volunteers are encouraged to adapt to the circumstances. Any time we spend on the air will contribute to developing and practicing our personal radio communication capabilities. Volunteers with ARIES, the National Traffic System, the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service, Skywarn, Community Emergency Response Team, 
Salvation Army Team Emergency Radio Network, and other allied groups and public service-oriented amateur radio groups are among those eligible to participate in SET to practice emergency operations, plans, nets, and procedures. ARRL has long-standing relationships with several national organizations, including the American Red Cross, the National Weather Service, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the Salvation Army, among others. This year's SET can be a chance to reach out to these partners at a safe distance or via online messages and teleconferences to establish or review plans and develop working relationships. ARRL field organization leaders have the option of conducting local or section-wide SETs on dates other than the October 3rd and 4th focal point weekend, but no later than the end of the calendar year. Contact your local ARRL emergency coordinator or net manager or ask your section manager. Additional information about simulated emergency tests and the reporting forms are available on the ARRL website. Meeting in virtual session July 17th and 18th, the ARRL Board of Directors conferred three major awards. The Hiram Percy Maxim Award. The ARRL Board conferred the 2020 ARRL Hiram Percy Maxim Award on Jacob M. Nagel, AD0JA of Wright City, Missouri. Licensed since 2012, the board cited Nagel for exemplifying the spirit of amateur radio by learning new technologies, providing community service, and helping with emergency communication. ARRL's top youth honor, the Hiram Percy Maxim Memorial Award, is given annually to a radio amateur and ARRL member under the age of 21. The award consists of a $1,500 stipend and an engraved plaque to be presented at an ARRL convention or event. The board cited Nagel's involvement in providing technical assistance to the OKAW Valley Amateur Radio Club and the Egyptian Radio Club of Illinois for the installation and upgrading of their club repeaters, advising the Germantown, Illinois Fire Department on upgrading its communication systems. Speaking at the 2016 Dayton Hamvention Youth Forum, sharing his expertise in online forums and active involvement in projects that allow him to integrate his amateur radio knowledge with other technical ventures in electronics. Knight Distinguished Service Award. The board named veteran ARRL Rhode Island Section Manager Robert G. Baudet, W1YRC of Cumberland, Rhode Island, as the recipient of the Knight Distinguished Service Award, given to an ARRL section manager. Baudet has been Rhode Island SM since 2002. The board cited Baudet's active promotion of ARRL activities in his section, including visiting hundreds of field day operations, participating in many volunteer examiner test sessions, attending at countless club meetings, staying active as a contester, DXer, and mentor, and serving as a model to other section managers. The board said Baudet's leadership of the ARRL Rhode Island Section Field Organization has led to a strong working cadre of volunteers within the section. Doug DeMaw W1FB Technical Excellence Award The board named Al Rabasa WN2M of Rockville, Maryland, as the recipient of the Doug DeMaw W1FB Technical Excellence Award. 
The board cited Robas's frequent contributions to the QST Hints and Kinks column and his QST technical articles, including the basics of fan cooling. The board also noted that Robasa has served as a subject matter expert of the Yesu FT101 transceiver, maintaining a website devoted to the technical aspects of the vintage transceiver series. Recognitions The board recognized the Fort Wayne Radio Club on its centennial and 90 years of ARRL affiliation, and the Radio Club of Tacoma for 100 years as an ARRL-affiliated club. New amateur license holders in the United Kingdom, especially those who took their exams via remote invigilation, now have a place to call their own, even if it's only in the virtual universe. The Radio Society of Great Britain has established a group on Facebook to provide guidance to new hams, as well as those who are returnees to radio. The group provides guidance on establishing a home station and a connection to a number of experienced hams who can advise them on a range of issues. The Facebook page is one of several resources the Society is making available at this challenging time of social distancing. New hams interested in exploring this and other resources should visit the website at rsgb.org slash beyond hyphen exams. Also in the UK, Ofcom has been making changes in testing for the intermediate level license, eliminating the practical test as it did with the foundation level. This means intermediate level exams can now be given over the internet via remote invigilation. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Next on Ask the Tech Guy, how to create a custom email address. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. How to create a custom email address. Ideally, you know, most of us have email addresses that are something like leo at gmail.com or aol.com or hotmail.com. But ideally... Your email address wouldn't be tied to any particular company, your internet service provider or a service like Gmail. Your email address should be permanent, something you never change in your whole lifetime. It should be a vanity domain name. I hate to use that word vanity because there's nothing vain about it. If you're a company like Twit, we have our own domain name. It's twit.tv and we get email at twit.tv. Well, your family could have the same thing, your own business, uh, just you as an individual. When my kids were little, I registered their names, their domain names, so that they would, when they got to be a certain age, uh, have their own email address. You really would, it would be the ideal to have a single phone number and a single email address throughout life. One you could change but one that wouldn't tie you to any particular service. Well, that's what we're going to show you how to do today. At first, it starts off by getting your own domain name. There are lots of places you can do this. Google has a domain registrar. GoDaddy's the most famous. Hover is where I go. Uh, Hover.com. I get all my domains there. And as you can see, I have a lot of domains. Many, 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 many domains. So I could make any one of these be an email address. 
It just depends on uh, you know what I'm looking for. Let's take a let's take one that isn't currently set up as an email address, and I can show you. So you're gonna buy a domain name, yourfamilyname.com, or there's even a .email extension you could use. I use that too, but um, let's use um, something uh, that would be good for an email. Ideally, it'd be like yourfamilylastname.com, because then you could set it up in such a way that it'd be. Mary, Joe, Sally, and Bob. That would be very cool. Most registrars will offer email service. You can see Hover does as well. But this is going to be a paid email service. And you don't need to pay for this to do it. So for your convenience, uh, you can do that. Many companies like GoDaddy will even host your email for you. Honestly, I don't like to tie my email hosting to the domain registrar because the whole point of this is that I have one email address I can use anytime and it can forward it to any email provider I want. So if I want to use Yahoo Mail for a while and then get tired of it and go to Gmail, I can do that or go to something more secure like the encrypted Proton Mail. I can do that. Uh, you'll have to use an email provider that allows you to set up a custom domain. Most of them do. Uh, if not, you can just forward the mail to them. And I'm going to show you how to do that. So let's say I've decided I have Leoville, or I guess leolaporte.net. That's a pretty good one, right? And I want to get email at leolaporte.net. So you could pay for forwarding, as I said, or you can get pretty fancy and go into the domain name record and modify it. Now, this is a more advanced kind of a black diamond tip. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But changing the MX record to point to an email provider will mean that email sent to this address will automatically get forwarded to that email provider. Once you've done that, all the mail that comes to leolaport.net in this case, even if it's Tony, Fred, Jim at leolaport.net will get forwarded to the email provider of my choice. What's nice is if I want to move, it's as easy as changing this MX record and it will get forwarded somewhere else. I use a company called Fastmail, which, by the way, I highly recommend. Fastmail does their own DNS. So another solution to this would be to point leolaport.net's domain to Fastmail. In fact, that's exactly what's happening right now. If I look at the overview and I go down here, I can change the name servers. When you first register with a registrar, they usually run the name servers, as is happening here, hover.com. But if I change the name servers to Fastmail, for instance, I can have Fastmail manage my domain record. This is actually great because it means that I own the name at hover.com, but Hover doesn't do anything. The name server, actually, I've, I've provided one that doesn't exist, but the name server is actually hosted by somebody else. Let's go back to Fastmail, and I'll show you where you can find out the information you need for that. And in Fastmail, it's in the settings. Any mail provider, many mail providers will do this kind of thing and uh, be able to help you set this up. In this case, Fastmail does its own domain hosting. In fact, for most of my mail, I actually use Fastmail. Uh, in fact, that's where leolaporte.com is. And the reason is uh, it's easy enough to change, to point the record here. And then once I've done that, Fastmail does a lot of really nice features 
like DKIM and SPF to provide authentication. That's important because these days there's so much spam, many email providers will not accept inbound mail unless they can prove that it's coming from the domain it says it's coming from. That's what DKIM does. That's what SPF does. There's another system called DMAR. And it's really important if you're going to use email and an email provider that they support that. All the big ones do. And you can see FastMail offers another uh, additional feature. I can accept mail addressed to leolaporte.com from any inbound address and automatically put it in the leolaporte.com mailbox. I can set up filters to do that. I can reject all mail. I can accept mail to any address. And that's what I usually do. So we can customize the DMS, DNS even more if you want to get really fancy. And this is where the, the special DMARC and other stuff is set up. This is really important. There's the DKIM. There's the SPF. This is all the email authentication. So it's really nice to have that. And you see I have that set up down below as well. So if I get email to leolaporte.com, any name at leolaporte.com, it's going to automatically, doesn't go to hover at all. It automatically goes straight to FastMail and FastMail processes it. That's a really nice feature of FastMail, but many email providers will do that. So you have a choice. The first step is to go to a registrar and pick any registrar you want. It's fine to go to GoDaddy. They'll try to sell you, upsell you email services. Remember, you don't need those. All you want is the domain name. Then you go into the domain name settings and either change the domain hosting to an email provider if they offer that, FastMail does, or change the MX record at GoDaddy to point to your email provider. Most cases, that'll work fine too. You, it, worst case scenario, you can pay for email forwarding where it just bounces off GoDaddy or whoever the pro, domain provider is and goes into the email box. That's another way to do it. The advantage of doing this, though, is your email will never again change. You don't have to ever tell anybody, I've got a new email. You can change your provider completely transparently. The address will be preserved. That's important. So if somebody sends something to leo at leolaporte.com, it will come into my fast mailbox and I can filter on that, it will still say this email was sent to leo at leolaporte.com. And in fact, I have many mailboxes, many different domains. I give out different domains to different people. It all ends up in the same inbox, but I'm able to filter on the inbound mail. One trick I use all the time is anytime I sign up for something, for instance, uh, I signed up for Verizon, I tell Verizon that my email is verizon at leolaporte.com. That way I can filter it and I know if Verizon sells my name to anybody else, it'll say Verizon at leolaporte.com even if it's coming from another company. It's surprising. Most companies do not resell those email addresses, but I know the companies that do. And of course, I can cancel those accounts if I wish to punish them. So it's nice though to have the filtering against who you signed up with. So I always have a domain set up so that I can use, when I sign up for a newsletter or sign up for a product, I can use that company's name at the domain name, and uh, I can keep track of who has that email address. And it gives them a unique email address. When I signed up, I registered with Ford for my new Mustang Mach-E electric vehicle, which is coming in the fall. I gave them Mustang at Laporte.email. So when I get anything 
to that email address, I know it's from Ford. It's easy to keep track of it. And it's kind of fun to have a custom domain like that. This is why you want to have your own domain and control it so that you can do your own email processing. It's really a much better way of doing it. You'll never have to change it again. The, the key is to have your own registrar. Do it yourself. Control that registrar. No need for the registrar to host your mail. You can host your mail anywhere you want. That's the point. You There are three different ways to do it. You can change the DNS record to point to the mail reg, mail company if the mail company supports that. You can change the MX record to point to the mail hosting service if they support that. Or you could use the built-in forwarding many domain registrars offer, sometimes for a fee, usually a buck or two a month. Uh, it's really important if you're going to do this, it's really important to understand how email works so you don't lose any email. So set it up and play with it and practice with it. Make sure everything's working properly before you give out this email address. I have a lot of email in my inboxes that's from myself just to say, is this working? Uh, but once you got it set up and working, then you can start to forward mail to it. And you'll have complete control of your email from then on. Highly recommend it. It doesn't usually cost very much to register a domain name. Most domain names are around $10 a year. If you want a really fancy custom domain name, sometimes you pay more. A .tv address, for instance, tends to be more expensive. There's some that are very expensive. Uh, .com is usually around $10 a year. Uh, I hope that helps. I hope it's not uh, too complicated. I didn't want to be too detailed, so I hope I wasn't too vague. But if you have any further questions, don't forget you can always email me with your questions. Ask the tech guy at twit.tv. Yes, that's a custom domain. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Backlogged, paralyzed, swamped, and overwhelmed. These are the words that describe the FCC in January 1977. The reason? Citizens banned radio applications. The CB craze had started in 1974 with the first gas crisis. Fueled by top 10 songs, TV shows, and movies, CB radio became an incredibly popular fad among the public in the days before computers, the internet, cable TV, or cellular phones. Prior to the gas crisis, the licensed CB population had stabilized at about 800,000. Now, over 500,000 applications per month poured into the FCC Gettysburg office. The peak was reached in January when 1 million applications came in. By the end of 1977, over 10 million CB licenses had been issued. The explosive growth in 11-meter activity, coupled with the unresolved Class E CB issue, caused increased friction between CBers and hams. 
the ARRL was still fighting the proposed reallocation of 2 MHz in our 220 band to Class E. Instead, the League suggested a new CB band at 900 MHz. Then, on April 4, 1977, the Class E fight was thrust into the public spotlight. Jack Anderson, in his nationally syndicated column, charged that the FCC was staffed by Ham Henchman, who conspired with the 300,000 amateurs to keep 9 million CBers from getting expanded frequencies. The ARRL, along with dozens of hams, sent rebuttals to the media. The friction gradually subsided when the FCC announced the 27 MHz CB band would be expanded from 23 to 40 channels. The Class E question was settled on October 13, 1977, when the FCC dropped the idea. Our 220 band was safe, for now. Ironically, the United States lost $200 million on the CB boom. How? Well, late in 1976, a federal court overturned the FCC's license fee structure. Rather than appeal the decision and or overhaul their fee assessment procedure, the FCC suspended collection of all license fees effective January 1, 1977. A Class D CB license cost $20. You can do the math. Incidentally, amateurs benefited from the license fee suspension. A new or renewed license except for the novice used to cost $9. Now it was free. Amateur radio was growing in 1977. At the beginning of the year, there were 293,655 hams. By mid-year, the number was 313,000, and on December 1st, it was 327,000. This was a healthy 11% growth in one year and a 25% increase over the 1974 census. The biggest single reason was probably 2-meter FM. Hundreds of repeaters with the distinctive WR prefix covered the country coast to coast. The pages of QST were filled with ads for crystal control 2-meter FM rigs, such as the Midland 13500 and 13505, the Wilson 1402 and 1405, the Regency HR2B and HR312, the GTX one and GTX10, and the Heathkit HW202. With crystals for 12-channel operation, these units cost about $250. Counting inflation, that's about $700 today. For the 1977 operator who wanted the latest in synthesized technology, Clegg had the FMDX for $599, or $1,500 today, and Heathkit introduced the HW2036, which covered the 146 through 148 MHz FM segment of the 2-meter band. For those on a tight budget, VHF Engineering had a 1-watt, 2-meter transmitter kit for $29.95, a 2-meter receiver kit for $69.95, and a 2-watt, 4-channel, 2-meter HT kit for $129.95. Technicians now had novice privileges but were still banned from 50.0 to 50.1 and 144 through 145 MHz. However, the 2-meter repeater segment at 146 through 148 MHz was becoming crowded. 
In response to several petitions, on November 4, 1977, the FCC opened a new repeater subband from 144.5 through 145.5 MHz. In addition, they deleted the separate station license requirement for repeaters. Any amateur, except for novice, could now put up a repeater without prior FCC approval. Logging requirements for repeaters were simplified. Finally, technicians were given full access to the new repeater subband, although the 144.0 through 144.5 segment was still out of bounds for technicians. In other FCC news for 1977, on March 1st, instant upgrading appeared. Licensed amateurs could immediately use new privileges upon passing the test for a higher class license, rather than waiting six to eight weeks for the overloaded FCC to send the new license. On July 1st, any extra class amateur could apply for a one by two call. Due to a 500% increase in amateur exams, as well as a massive workload, the FCC announced on August 18th that the CW sending test would be eliminated for all licenses above novice. However, the FCC had only one proposal that brought forth the wrath of the amateur community. Citing illegal CB operation on the 10.5 meter band, in other words, those frequencies between 27.405 and 28 MHz, the FCC wanted to ban commercial amplifiers capable of operation between 24 and 35 MHz and to require type acceptance on any amplifier that operated below 144 MHz. Except for novice VXOs in the early 1970s, the FCC had never required type acceptance on any amateur transmitter. The amateur community strongly opposed this proposal. Hams were being punished for the crimes of others. The FCC promised an answer by 1978. In summary, 1977 was a good year for amateurs, but there was still some unfinished business. Would technicians get the full 2-meter band and, along with generals, regain the 50.0 through 50.1 MHz segment they lost under incentive licensing? Would CB radio continue its massive growth and make more demands on amateur frequencies? Finally, would the FCC ban 10-meter amplifiers? The answers lie in 1978. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. Initially scheduled for July, the Northeast Ham Exposition, host of the 2020 ARRL New England Division Convention, was moved back to November because of the coronavirus pandemic. Now the in-person event is off until next summer, although some activities will take place online this year. Renamed before the 2019 show, the Northeast Ham Exposition has succeeded the long-running annual Boxborough Hamfest in Boxborough, Massachusetts. As announced early this year, the next Ham Exposition will take place in a new location in Marlborough, Massachusetts. Large indoor gatherings such as our convention are currently prohibited by Massachusetts state law, Northeast Ham Exposition Chair Bob DeMattia, K1IW, said over the weekend. This is highly unlikely to change by November. Unfortunately, we will not be able to hold a physical convention this year. Still on, however, will be the W1A Special Event Station, which will be on the air over the weekend of October 31st through November 1st. 
W1A will be operated from the operator's home stations, Debatia explained. We will also be hosting a Saturday evening virtual banquet on November 7th, featuring a guest speaker. Order your favorite takeout or delivery, pull up a chair to your screen, and join your friends for an interesting presentation. After the talk, virtual breakout rooms will be available for you to converse with your table. Meanwhile, the Nashua Area Radio Society will be running an online version of its ham boot camp. This is a multi-session program for hams young and old to learn about the various amateur radio activities. Also, Eastern Massachusetts Amateur Radio Emergency Service will conduct online versions of their training sessions. We look forward to seeing everyone in person at our 2021 Northeast Ham Exposition Convention on July 23rd, 24th, and 25th, 2021, Dematia said. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, August 7th. Are we finally on our way out of the HF Propagation doldrums? Maybe. We have another spot on the sun this week and it's sparking some minor flares. The solar flux index remains somewhat elevated and hams are reporting some increases in activity as high as 15 meters. There is a stream of solar wind on the way that will probably reach us this weekend, so expect some disruptions over the next few days. On VHF and UHF, things are pretty quiet from 2 meters and up, with one exception. Reports of strong band openings are coming in from north-central California, and it looks like these may continue well into next week. AMSAT's Bruce Page, KK5DO, is reporting that there's a clever experiment being conducted on the CubeSat UWE-4. The satellite has an electric propulsion system called NANO-FEEP, or Field Emission Electric Propulsion, which was developed by the Technical University of Dresden. From June 23rd through July 3rd, the satellite was able to use the propulsion system to change its altitude by more than 100 meters. The normal decay would have been about 21 meters. What makes this an important test is that with all the CubeSats going into space, when one reaches the end of its life, instead of waiting on normal decay to bring it into the atmosphere to burn up, it can be quickly lowered to re-enter sooner. This will help mitigate all the space debris that's building up, and it will be an important factor to consider for all the amateur radio satellites currently planned to debut in the coming years. Despite midsummer conditions, at least seven U.S. listeners, most of them radio amateurs, were able to copy the 17.2 kilohertz signal from the SAQ Alexanderson alternator at the World Heritage Grinton radio station in Sweden. The July 5th transmission from the vintage electromechanical transmitter commemorated the annual Alexanderson Day. All told, more than 600 reception reports were received, which represents a new record. 
The odds were not optimal this year with the ongoing pandemic, and early Sunday morning, the rain was pouring down and heavy wind gusts made it hard to even take a peek at the antennas outdoor, the report from SAQ said. The transmitter hall was empty except for five members of the Alexander Association. Dating from the 1920s, the Alexanderson alternator, essentially an AC alternator run at extremely high speed, can put out about 200 kilowatts, but is typically operated at less than half that power level. Once providing reliable transatlantic communication, it is now a museum piece and only put on the air on special occasions. The transmitter was developed by Swedish engineer and radio pioneer Ernst Alexanderson, who was employed at General Electric in Schenectady, New York, and was chief engineer at the Radio Corporation of America. Two Alexanderson Day transmissions were made. On the first transmission, the rainy weather was making it hard at first to reach good output to the antenna, but after a few minutes, with the VVV, 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 this is SAQ loop, the system started to dry, and the amps or antenna current increased. Skies cleared for the second transmission later in the day, and according to the report, the antenna current rose to 60 amps, which is optimal, the report said. The occasion marked the inaugural transmission by Kai Sunberg, SA6KSU, at the helm of SAQ in a radio uniform dating back to the 1960s. An article about Alexanderson Day, the legacy of radio at Grindton Station's SAQ, appears on page 66 of the July 2019 issue of QST. The VK0IR de-expedition to Heard Island took place in January and February of 1997. Co-leader Robert Schmeider, KK6EK, shot a lot of video during the amateur radio adventure, but lost track of it afterward. During the VK0IRD expedition, DXers from around the world were astounded that signals from the sub-Antarctic Indian Ocean could be heard at the bottom of the solar cycle. A team of 20 operators carried out the massive, expensive, then high-tech, and very successful de-expedition, making a remarkable 80,673 contacts. The VK0IR story was told in detail in the September 1997 issue of QST. Recently I discovered about six hours of video that I had shot during the expedition, but which had never been seen, not even by me, Schneider told the Daily DX. I divided the collection into six parts, which I have posted to YouTube. Schmeider offered his introductions to each segment. On 11 January 1997, 20 men landed on one of the most remote places in the world, Heard Island, located in the Southern Ocean almost to Antarctica. They set up a village with all life support, including accommodations, light and power, galley and a huge array of radios, antennas, and satellite communications gear. Over the next two weeks, using the call sign VK0IR, the team logged 80,673 contacts with radio operators worldwide, a new world record for self-supported expeditions. The team also made daily explorations around the island to document the rocks, glaciers, rivers, plants, birds, and seals that are the dominant residents of this live volcano. Many of you will remember this expedition, and quite a few of you made significant contributions. The expedition was documented in numerous articles, presentations, and professional videos, 
and received many awards, including a 2020 poll that ranks it number one among all such expeditions of the past 30 years. Unnoticed at the time, I shot six hours of video of all aspects of the project. Unfortunately, these videos were lost until mid-2020, 23 years later. No one, including me, had ever viewed these videos. Upon finding them, I divided the material into six separate parts. Other than separation into the parts, the videos needed little editing. They contain almost all of the material that was shot in 1997, and most of it is in exactly the order it was shot. They include the preparation for the trip, the outbound voyage, the landing and setup, operations during the de-expedition, a look around the environment, and finally the departure. These videos, which might offer an entertaining club presentation, are also available by searching Robert Schmider Heard Island on YouTube. A popular net with an easygoing roundtable format has recently gone silent. It was known as the Millennium Net. During its formative years, it was the Net on Six, because that was the band where it began. On Wednesday evenings, hams gathered there to toss around topics ranging from music to astronomy to, of course, ham radio. The Millennium Net would have been scheduled to meet again on August 19th, but there will be no more check-ins for the group as the net has gone off the air. The one-hour net, which more recently moved to Echolink instead, grew in popularity with its casual roundtable format. Then, a few years ago, one of its founders, Mike Thurlow, NJ2BA, became a silent key. The net went silent too. Net co-founder Gary Wilt, N2NJY, decided to revive it after a few weeks, but by 2019, the lack of check-ins and the general weariness had pretty much sealed its fate. There is, however, a legacy the net leaves behind. Longtime net member Daryl Stout, WX4QZ, said one evening's discussion on the net inspired his creation of a comprehensive reference list of about 150 nets split between D-Star, Echolink, and other linked nets. That list is still available by writing WX4QZ at awrl.net. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at twiar.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio The other day I managed my first DX contact using a new mode, FT8. It wasn't very far away, all of 2600 kilometers or so, but it evoked memories of my first ever on-air DX contact nearly a decade ago. I should say thank you to Yankee Delta 3 Yankee Oscar Golf for my 15 meter contact. Fitting because my first ever was also on 15 meters as I recall. Unfortunately, I never did log my first. Recently, a friend asked me how the two compared. 15 metres and logging aside, there's a lot of similarities, even though I'm a more experienced operator today when compared to when I made my first ever contact. The preparation and the building anticipation is what made the contact all the sweeter. 
A while ago, I managed to connect the audio of my radio to a computer. This is pretty much the first step in starting to use digital modes. Essentially, many common digital modes use an SSB transmission to generate and receive audio that in turn contains digitally encoded information. There are hundreds of modes like this, from PSK31 to RITI, Whisper, FT8, SSTV and many more. If you've not yet dabbled in this area, I'd recommend starting with WSJTX. The software is so far the best tool I've found to make sure that your digital levels are correct and offers several popular modes to see how your station is operating. If you're asking for a first mode recommendation, I'd start with Whisper. Just do the receive part first, then work on from there. There are many tutorials available, some better than others, so if the one you find doesn't float your boat, keep looking. A fly overview is that there are several things that you need to get working, and if they don't all work together, you'll get no result. Obviously, you'll need to install the software, but that's not the whole story. For the software to be able to control your radio, change bands, frequency, and set up things like split operation, you'll need to set up the hardware to do this. In my case, a cat cable between the radio and the computer. You'll also need to set up control software that knows how to talk to the hardware. In my case, that's Hamlib on Linux, but it could be Hamlib or FLRig on macOS, or something like OmniRig on your Windows machine. The purpose is to control the radio. When you're troubleshooting, keep that in mind. Hardware plus software need to work together to control the radio, and this is before you actually do anything useful with the radio. Then you need to have both hardware and software to have audio go between the computer and the radio. In my case, the headphone and microphone connectors on my computer are connected to the data port on the back of the radio. If your computer doesn't have access to sockets, you might need to use a USB sound card. If your radio doesn't have an easily accessible port, you might need to have an interface. The computer software in this case is likely setting the volume levels using the audio mixer in your operating system. I will add that some radios have a USB socket on the back that combines both cat control and audio. The principle though is the same. You need to make the cat interface work, which is essentially a serial connection, and you need to make the audio work, which is essentially a sound card. Nothing else will make sense until you've managed to make those two work. Then, and only then, can you try to launch something like WSJTX, pointed at the various things you've configured, then you can actually start decoding signals. For WSJTX to work properly, there's one more thing. An accurate clock is required. Likely, you'll need to use a piece of software that knows how to synchronize with something called NTP, or Network Time Protocol. The simplest is to point your clock tool at a time server called pool.ntp.org, which will get you global time coverage. Each operating system does this differently, but getting it right is essential before WSJTX will actually make sense. You can visit time.is in a web browser to see how accurate your clock currently is. So, get computer control of your radio working, get audio working, set the clock, then you can run Whisper, FTA, JT65 or any other mode. I will note that I'm not attempting to give you specific computer support here, just an overview of what's needed before anything will work. If you've been contesting, then cat control might already be operational. If you've been using a computer voice keyer, then audio might also be ready. Depending on where you are on your digital journey, these steps might be complicated or trivial. 
Once you've done all that, you can start doing things like figuring out where satellites are, or how to talk to the International Space Station, or use FLDG to make a PSK-31 contact, or send a picture using SSTV or decoder weather facts. When you've made that first digital DX contact, I'm sure that you too will have a sense of accomplishment. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. Here's a subject most hams have had to deal with, on towers, on the roof, or on the ground. Waterproofing coax connections. Let's look at the four most popular products I know of. The most commonly used product I know of is called coax seal. This stuff is sold on small rolls, about a half an inch wide and 60 inches long. It is easy to apply to clean and dry surfaces. At the size sold, one roll does not cover much except maybe one or two small connectors. My experience with coax seal is it stands up to the elements well over a period of years and is somewhat reusable for the first months in the environment. On a commercial tower, the white strips of paper fly away nicely in a gentle breeze. Being sold on a roll, it is easy to secure several to a climbing belt like rolls of electrical tape. In a tool bag, it tends to get squished into shapes that make it hard to use. Another method of protecting connections is with liquid electrical tape. This stuff is commonly sold in small, 4-ounce cans at the hardware store. These small cans are similar to those used for PVC cement and include a brush. This substance is similar to a solvent-dissolved polymer, perhaps even rubber. Since it is kept in a liquid state with solvents, which evaporate when it applied or when the can is left open, you probably don't want to smoke while the can is open. After application with this product, the protective layer tends to be much thinner than with the wrap-type sealer. This does make an excellent underlayer when using a wrap-on sealer. For ground-level connections where repeated layers can be added, this stuff is both easy to use and a good value. Liquid electrical tape probably cannot be applied over coax seal, but it can be applied onto less than perfect surfaces. But again, clean and dry is best. According to the label, multiple layers can be added if you allow the stuff to set for about 5 minutes. Since it is sold in the can, it rides along in the tool bag, but is easily dropped. Although I've only seen one this one used a couple of times, some people still use electrical tape to seal coax connections. I do not recommend using electrical tape unless it is used as a cover over one of the wraps or brush-on sealers. Problem with electrical tape is it ages poorly when exposed to sunlight, moisture, heat, and more. It tends to start to unwrap over time, crack, or get brittle. When you've installed as many antennas as I have, you've probably read some mention of how thickly you can cover a connection before you mess up that antenna's ability to shed rainwater. So the bottom line on, on electrical tape is I will not recommend using it as a primary protective layer. The fourth method I know of is similar to coax seal on rolls. Some commercial climbers use insulation wrap for automotive air conditioner systems. There are lots of brands available, so you'll have to go to several auto parts stores to hunt for the really good stuff. This wrap is much wider and thicker than coax seal and comes on a roll just like coax seal. 
This is made to be wrapped on metal tubes coming in and out of automotive air conditioner compressors to reduce dripping of water, improve efficiency, and protect from the elements. And since it is made to stand up to the elements and is also cost effective, the only startup cost for you is doing the research and finding a brand and a supplier. There are lots of different kinds, so look for the one most like coaxial and test it on your own before using it on someone else's antenna. Oh yeah, there is one more similar to coaxial. It is sold in a toothpaste type tube. I've never used any, so I can't comment on how it holds up to Mother Nature or how it is to use. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. The Collegiate QSO Party is on schedule for September 19th and 20th. The QSO Party is an operating event focused on amateur radio clubs at colleges and universities around the world. Each fall, the Collegiate QSO Party provides an opportunity for clubs to demonstrate amateur radio to new members, engage with alumni, and promote activity throughout college and university communities. For school clubs that can find a way to keep their members involved, these times could be an opportunity as there will be fewer extracurricular activities competing for students' time and attention. The student population in general is already comfortable and thriving with a variety of online activities. The key to getting and keeping more young people involved in amateur radio may be to follow their lead. More online and non-traditional amateur radio-based activities, where the radio part is a component of a high-altitude balloon, semi-autonomous seafaring robots, or building a communications network. In the final tally, the International Stay Home, Stay Safe event logged 18,838 participants in 181 DXCC entities who used CW, SSB, and FT8 to share greetings during the 24-hour contest-like event. 39 registered stay-home, stay-safe stations, many with stay-home suffixes, were on the air from all continents, logging 120,181 contacts during the June 6th and 7th event. The University of Würzburg Experimental Satellite 4, UWE-4, successfully used its propulsion system in order to conduct orbit control. The one-unit CubeSat is equipped with an electric propulsion system called Nano-FEEP, developed by the Technical University in Dresden. This marks the first time in CubeSat history that a 1U CubeSat has changed its orbit using an onboard propulsion system. 
Several maneuvers were performed within 11 days between June 23rd and July 3rd, lowering the CubeSat's altitude by more than 100 meters, or 328 feet, compared to an average of 21 meters, or 69 feet, with natural orbital decay. Coincidentally, on June 2nd, the UWE-4 team received a conjunction data message from the U.S. Air Force indicating a potential safety threat from a non-operational Iridium satellite, although UWE-4 was already below the Iridium satellite at the projected time of conjunction. Lowering the satellite of a spacecraft in low Earth orbit has the negative effect of reducing its lifetime because low-Earth orbiting satellites usually burn up during re-entry. Thus, this experiment is a concept demonstration of a deorbiting maneuver shown at the smallest class of spacecraft in low-Earth orbit, the university said. While satellites are not yet required to carry propulsion systems to facilitate a planned deorbiting, such an obligation is under serious discussion due to the vastly increasing number of satellites in mega-constellations. The experiment of UWE-4 presents a deorbiting solution for the fraction of space debris of operational but unused satellites of today and for the mega-constellations of tomorrow, the university said. AMSAT notes that U.S. regulations make the ability to deorbit a requirement for high Earth orbit amateur satellites in the future. The first activation of the Nano FEEP thruster on the UWE-4 took place in early 2019. UWE-4 transmits telemetry on 435.600 MHz. Meanwhile, creators of small satellites such as CubeSats and other amateur radio satellites have their eyes on the latest iteration of a small suborbital space plane known as the Dawn Mark II Aurora. It is the vision of Dawn Aerospace, which operates in the Netherlands and New Zealand. Dawn describes the plane as a potential game-changer for the smallest of the small satellites and touts its ability to carry payloads between 110 and 220 pounds all the way to orbit. Smaller than a compact car, it can make several flights a day using conventional airport runways anywhere in the world, eliminating the need for vertical launches. According to the Dawn Aerospace website, the plane's first launch is to take place from the South Island of New Zealand, and it will fly to an altitude of more than 100 kilometers, or 62 miles. And finally this week, there's an incredible amount of radio signals out there. Sometimes it's impossible to know them all, let alone recognize what each one is. So why not get help from Signal ID? At the moment, this open source smartphone app recognizes about 20 signals with only 5 seconds of recording time. It tries to recognize what the signal is. Here's a list of the currently recognized signals. Uh, RIDI, commercial 85 hertz, 170 hertz, 450 hertz, 850 hertz. Amateur 170 hertz plus Pactor with the standard FSP, FEC, and Cell Call. Uh, there's also ASCII at 170 hertz. ALIS, Kodan 8580, 200, and 250 hertz. SIS 3650, SIS 45, uh, SIS 5050. Stan AG 4285, that's the gen, the SIS 3000, the FEC. 8PSK, TFC, IDLE, and SIS 3000, FT4, FT8. WeFax at 120 and 240, 2GAL, 3GAL, CHIP64, and APRS in burst mode. That's a pretty long list right there, and we hope to see more. Visit the Play Store and give the app a try. Once again, it's called Signal ID. 
This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.